Welcome, Fivers, to another episode of High Five, the podcast, a movie podcast for people who like other stuff, too. On this week's episode, your hosts Q and Jay dive into some of their favorite movies and hopefully talk about some of your favorites, too. Feel free to yell at your speakers when we ignore your favorites, or you could just tweet at us with your choices, like an adult. Now, let's join Q and Jay in the writer's room as they dive in. Fair warning. This podcast may contain spoilers for movies that came out 20 years ago, but at this point, that's really your fault. And now, on with the show. Hey, Q. Hey, Jay. How's it going, man? It is going awesome. You know, I was thinking about it, and I wanted to ask you a question. Okay. You want to know what the funniest thing about Europe is, man? Yeah. So, it's the little differences. You know, like, all just the... Everything's the same. They got the same shit over there, but there's just, like, a little different, you know? (laughs) Right. Yeah, definitely. Oh, okay, cool. So, like, you know, with McDonald's, like, you know, they they don't have quarter pounders with cheese in Paris, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. Because, yeah, because the the metric system makes it... It's just uh, different over there, right? uh, Yeah, so... uh, High five! Should we high five? High five! High five! High five! High five, five, son! Woo! High five! Don't leave me hanging. (laughs) So, welcome back. I'm going to be honest, Jay. I don't know what's up with the impromptu French lesson, but when you're going to do stuff like that, you need to at least give me a heads up, okay? No? Um, I was trying to do movie bits, man. You made me look oh. like a jackass. Oh, man. We're, t- we're talking like... Tarantino movies. I... So I was doing Tarantino bits, and you really made me look like a fool. <laughs> you could look like a fool anywhere, Daddy-O. Don't be a... Bingo, oh! <laughs> nobody, nobody could see it, but uh, Jay could see it. I did the <laughs> dotted square outline. Like I, Mia does from Pulp Fiction. I was uh, I was watching you do it and hoping that it would show up on the phone screen of the dots. <laughs> you know what? That's a filter that that Facebook needs for when you do Facebook chats. You just if you make a square in the air and that rhymes, it right. just you just add dots. Well, you know that. I mean, they have the technology. Well, I know they have the technology that's selling all of our age data and pictures to Russia, for sure. And I just watched Chernobyl. Nothing good is coming out of that. <laughs> no, no, nothing good's coming. Actually, it was weird. I did a, uh, a a a face age whatever picture on that on that plant from Chernobyl, and the first picture was it as a fine plant, and the next picture was uh was Chernobyl. <laughs> Whoa, dark. That, that bit didn't work either, and it just felt heavy. You know and what? I, I, I'm testing out a new tight five. It's not working. I'm not using this on Letterman. It's not. Don't None do of this. Just stick None with the high five. Leave you know the what? tight five alone. I think I think that's what we need to do. So, you know, I'm going to stick back with it. This <laughs> is High Five Colon the podcast. Welcome, everybody, back. Welcome to the show, guys. It's <laughs> it's great to be here. We don't do always. the whole promotion of ourselves thing very well, Q, I've noticed. Uh, isn't that uh, funny? It is. So, hey, by the way, guys, while you're listening, yes. uh, you should totally subscribe to this podcast and continue to listen. Hey, I- guys, here's some information. We're a podcast. And I'm, I'm Jay. And I'm Q. And awesome. we host a show. 
And that's what this is. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, In all seriousness, <laughs> of course, this I'm still playing the dumb card. I'm just trying yeah. to spike <laughs> spike the conversation. Uh, no, in all seriousness, this is High Five the Podcast. You are Jay, as always. And I you am are Q, Q, as always. And today we're talking uh, maybe one of the biggest things that you and I have been excited about collectively over the past couple months, which is the release of a brand new Tarantino joint. It I don't is. think he calls them that, like he Spike doesn't. Lee, um, but... He we probably can. wants to, but he just doesn't. Right. I don't know so we'll why do it yet, but we'll do it for we, him. Yeah, totally. So a brand new Tarantino joint drops today as a matter of... Well, technically yep. last night had some preview screenings. Sure, But today sure. we get Once, Once Upon, Upon a, a time, time in Hollywood. Which I am crazy excited about. I know you're crazy excited about. I am as well. We'll dive into kind of our feelings on Tarantino, past, present, and future, uh, and his movies and stuff. But I, I kind of wanted to take a minute and catch up with you, Q. Oh, okay. How have you been? How's your week been going? Oh, uh, you know, it's pretty good. I went to go see The Lion King So recently. did we. And now, we talked about that last week on the show. Uh, if anyone remembers, if you didn't check out last week's episode, we did the top five live-action adaptations of Disney movies. Yep. So that's very applicable. We were lucky enough to see it, I think, the Thursday night before it, before it premiered. Um, oh, snap. Like early screening? Yeah, yeah. We got like an early screening pass. And it was really neat. We got to take Emma to it. Uh, oh the whole family God. was there. It was great. Um, Dope. And then, but you guys went and saw it over the weekend, you said, or mentioned. We I did. Think. Yeah. I went and saw it on Saturday, last Saturday. And here's the big question. Yes. What did, what did you think? Um, okay. So my exact reaction when I left the theater was this that was very cool to see. Uh huh. But if I want to watch The Lion King again, I will probably just I, watch the cartoon. You know what? That and that's a not a negative reaction. Not at all. And like you weren't walking out going, "Man, this thing fucking looked like ass," or nope, "This not was at all. terrible," or "I hated this." I had the exact same reaction. I actually think you and I talked about it before you went. Yeah. And do you remember what I said to you? Yeah. Like you how said, I described it. You said that uh, if I was looking for photorealistic animals acting out the exact film of The Lion King, then I would be pleased. <laughs> yeah. Was I right or was I right? No, you were pretty right. I that was I mean, uh, the general consensus, I went and saw it with Haley and her sister and a friend of ours, Riley. And uh, we went and saw it and we had a great time while we were watching it. And yep. we enjoyed it, and then we all kind of came out of the movie, and we were, of course, asking each other what we thought. And legitimately, our general consensus was that was a very cool spectacle. Yes. If I had ever wanted to see that movie, what it would look like if it were acted out by real animals, then cool, I yeah. have seen that now. But it is not something that I'm like, well, that's the new watermark for the Lion King. Exactly. It's not gonna. It doesn't connect with me in the same way. It doesn't add anything. Kind of like. Uh, I mean, I know it's not a remake, but you know the Blade, uh, the Blade Runner sequel, sure. uh, twenty forty nine, like adds to that mythology. Just sure. didn't really add anything to the story. Other I... than a banging Beyonce song. Oh, the one that was in the background or whatever. Spirit, I think it was called. I had to have that pointed out to me because. Uh, Amanda mentioned that. She's like, yeah, that new Beyonce song that they shoved in there. I was like, when did someone sing a new song? And she's like, no, it was a background song. I was like, oh, I wasn't even paying attention. It, it was uh, as Nala is running away from Scar's kingdom into gotcha. the jungle to 
I guess not find Simba, but just like get away just from get things. Out. Yeah, get out. That um, song is playing. I'll need to go back and well, I'll listen to it on Spotify or something. It did not well, register with well, me. You in, could also listen to uh, Beyonce's whole new album that she dropped. Yeah, I saw called that. Lion King: The, the gift. gift. I think she's saying this is a gift I'm giving all of you guys. No, that's exactly definitely <laughs> yeah. what she's saying for sure. Um, it was great. Honestly, Billy Eichner, Seth Rogen were the best parts of the movie, they, I think. I agree. Them and John Oliver. I thought John Oliver added something to Zazu that I liked. I will agree to disagree. That's, I think he was doing exactly the Zazu from... Really? Honestly, if I didn't even know it was John Oliver, I would have assumed they just They just used, used Paul Rubens again? Yeah, they just used the same audio. Yeah. Well... Again, I'm not saying it was better. I just I did like it. I like, will it say made that, me laugh. I will say that um, the only reason I don't put him in the same with Billy Eichner and Seth Rogen is because Seth Rogen and Billy Eichner were noticeably different. Yes, like yes, Billy Eichner still had that New York twang, but he played the character very differently. Yeah, um, and Seth Rogen was almost maybe a more lovable Pumbaa. Like, he was... Weirdly. Weirdly, like, denser. Yeah. And just kind of like a lovable oaf. Um, I thought that was fine. Seth Rogen cannot sing. No. So that is... No. That was one thing that was, like, blaringly obvious when they were... When they were doing... Cert when they did a Hakuna Matata and they got to his whole backstory... And it was rough, yeah. It was pretty rough, although I will say tiny baby Pumbaa is pretty <laughs> adorable. I was actually surprised that they did the flashback because nothing up until that point had used any of the cartoony style edits. You know, like we talked uh, earlier about um, I Just Can't Wait to Be King. Sure. Um, and so they didn't do any of those jump cuts. And so when they actually went back in time to show baby Pumbaa, I got really happy. I was like, oh, great. They're going to do this gag. I like it. I it was it. cute. Um, I will say probably my biggest disappointment out of the movie, and I knew it was coming thanks to talking to you beforehand, was the truncation of the Be Prepared song. Yeah, okay. And like I said, I didn't want to ruin like what happened or give you any false impression, but I did want you to know that that was the biggest change. And it was like song-wise. I'm not 100% sure why they did it. I get that maybe they didn't want to make it as silly. They also totally changed the lyrics of that mm -hmm. song. So it it kind of gets across the point in the first two lyrics. So for those who haven't seen the movie yet, basically the song is truncated to the first chorus. So it hits it. it hits the chorus and then it's over. Yeah, and it's not really sung. It's more of like, like spoken word, angry poemed. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, William Shatner songs. <laughs> yes, yes. I uh, like I said that was to me the biggest disappointment, mainly because I love the Jeremy Irons version so much. Sure. But then again, that level of over the topness that is that song would be almost it'd be tough to do in the movie that they had because everything was pretty muted. I will say, though, that uh, Chiwetel, very, very pleasantly surprised with his performance. That I have the exact same opinion. I was very nervous going in. I did not think that, you know, Jeremy Irons' shoes could be filled. But I liked the different take that he did with it. But it, did, it almost didn't feel too drastically it, different. It was still conniving, but it was like a different... 
he just he had Jeremy Irons intensity, but stripped out the theatrics, which right. I didn't think was possible. Right. But he and did the, it. There was this underlying vein, uh, uh, vein, I suppose, of cowardice. Yeah. More so like he felt way more like cowardly than Scar did. Yeah. Um, in the original animation, but like cowardly in a like you said, like in a conniving way. Right. Like, um. I thought, I don't know, I was really impressed. Uh, outside of that, visually, it may be one of the most stunning things I've ever seen. As far as, like, there were many scenes where Haley and I looked at each other and we were both like, I cannot believe that this is animation. That's the like, thing. Okay, and I need to ask you just to confirm from my own head. There sure. were no real lions in this. There were zero real animals, period. That's unbelievable i know there that scene with the mouse like yeah. running at the beginning like through water and then up the plant and everything yeah looked so convincingly national geographic photorealistic right. that i literally was having a hard time like rectifying that in my head that, that it like, wasn't right that, that like they wasn't had to at least real. had a mouse in here somewhere right sure like too good right and so I will my hats off to uh, Favreau and right. the Disney team, and I'm sure they've got ILM in the mix now. Um, but that shit looked next level good. Well, let me ask you a question. I know this isn't a deep dive into that movie, but I am curious now because you said that of your opinion on this. So one of my, I guess, qualms with the movie is that I don't feel like it was as expressive or as emotionally connecting mm -hmm. as the original mm -hmm. and i know that a lot of that was because they muted the performances because car the cartoon could be super over the top but it might feel weird if very realistic lions were being super over the top but i kind of wish they had at least made their eyes more expressive can but i that would have ruined the photorealism can i say i did not get that problem at all really nope Okay. I watched the whole movie, and Haley and I even left, and I asked her what she thought because I also read some articles leading to the release that said that that was the biggest complaint. And I asked her, I was like, hey, just out of curiosity, how what did you feel about like the animals emoting? Did you feel like it was lost because they were photorealistic? And she was like, not at all. She was like, I totally felt the emotions that they were portraying when you looked at them. And I thought back through it and I was looking at it and I've got to say I feel the same I okay. actually I thought as a and you you're you're a pet owner as I am a, I am as a pet owner I looked at their faces and they expressed emotion the same way that my dog expresses emotion right like I could feel it now s somehow I don't here, know here's what I'll say I mean it feels it, like – I mean, you definitely felt it more than I did, which is fine, and I'm glad that you well, guys sure. you had that experience. I'm wondering – I just – I don't know. Maybe I just wanted it to be more cartoony, like more movie expressive. I don't know. I don't there's, feel there's like it could – something about the eyes. I, I genuinely don't feel like it, it should have been. I feel like yeah. they made the right choice. I feel like it would have felt – I think you would have really hit that uncanny valley even harder if You're they would have right. – if they would have been doing some sort of because you're looking at what is essentially a photorealistic animal. And if it suddenly started to move 
or have expressions in a way that, that a photorealistic animal yeah. doesn't, your brain is going to have a hard time like rectifying that. And I would bet money that some version of this conversation happened in in pre-production. Oh, probably. And so I I, well, I you would and agree I are, with you. You and I are definitely as smart as all of the board members Ex- at Disney. At least. At definitely. least that level. Definitely. Um, so I would imagine that this conversation happened, and you're probably right. I bet they made the be- the right decision, and it, and again, like I said, I don't really have any complaints against the no. movie, honestly. And uh, let me tie this to another quick movie review. We watched the new Pet Cemetery. Oh, good. I haven't watched it yet, so don't spoil it for me. I, I won't. But I kind of had the same feeling as Lion King. Like it just none en- of their actors had this had <laughs> no, good had, emotion. They're all or- <laughs> dead eyes. They all look photorealistic. What's his um, name? Jason. Uh, Clark, J- yeah. So Jason Clark just dead eyes the whole just, time. Just, well, per Jason Clark's um, eyes. No, <laughs> the statement I'll make in general is: if the original didn't exist, the that would be amazing. Sure, but because the original exists and I have that context, it's like, well, I didn't need what this is. Sure, and that's kind of how I feel about the Lion King: is that it, in almost no ways except for the photorealism, does it outdo the original. Except sure. in one scene, the the lion sleeps tonight scene. Oh, God, that was that, amazing! It was amazing and gorgeous. When all the animals like start coming and joining yes. them, and they start, it was so funny. I was la- that was like I was laughing out loud in the theater at that. It just how beautiful and ridiculous it was. But can I can I also I agree with you. I feel like the Lion King the 2019 is the equivalent of an amusement park ride. You do it once for the experience and the spectacle, yep. but it's not necessarily something you want to do every single day, all day. Mm-hmm. I agree. It's, this, it's the same for me. Like, I went and saw it. Man, that was cool. Does it justify as it, its existence? Probably not. Uh, that was a lot of money spent on making <laughs> this movie. And if it I, will and probably again, earn it back. Oh, it definitely. I think it but, already has. But... Then again, is when I ask people, hey, have you seen The Lion King? And they say, no, it is not going to be the copy that I reach for. No. It will be the original that I reach for. And oddly enough, not because it's any different. <laughs> because it's not. No. It is basically a shot-for-shot remake. And if we're being honest, or if I'm being honest, I think the new version is a better narrative. Like, I think they connect oh, the dots, you know, making... Uh, Scar have, you know, tried to mate sure. with Mufasa's wife, and the the reason that they're down in the gorge and the way the hyenas kind of come into play, all of that is actually better on a narrative structure. But when I go back to the Lion King, I'm always going to go back to the anime, the original, as sure. opposed to this one, and not feel bad about it, not even have a really a tough decision. Sure. So now that we've had a 20-minute discussion right, of the new Lord. Lion King movie, I can segue from that into our topic. Ooh, do and it. The, that segue is the Lion King is most undoubtedly one of my favorite soundtracks to any Disney animated movie out there. I know every single song by heart. It is top of the pops for me in regards to Disney. And today... We have chosen not to discuss Tarantino's film repertoire, but to discuss the soundtracks belonging to his film yeah, repertoire. Yeah, that you know what, Q? Awesome segue. Thank you. That was so, really, really well done. 
Thank you. For once, normally they're like really weird backward segues. But those are my favorite. And segue. I I like those better. Those make me laugh harder. But this one was like really well crafted. Perfect. I dug it. Thank you. Uh, But yeah, yeah, guys, you know, obviously with uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood coming out today, we wanted to talk Tarantino, but everybody talks Tarantino. Uh, We've probably talked Tarantino on this podcast before, even though we don't have an episode dedicated to him. So we decided to come at it from a different angle. He revolutionized and changed the way that indie films use music and how their identity can be enabled by music and how their story structure can can help with that. I mean, I would hearken to say, and Q disagree, if you will, but sure. without Tarantino and I disagree. Style, I doubt we'd have an Edgar Wright. Oh, for sure. De- definitely, we See, would not. So, so talking about Tarantino's movies in the space of their music, I think is perfect for today. Yeah, no, 100%. So, dating back to, I'm trying to think, I believe the first Tarantino movie I saw was Jackie Brown. Oh, really? That was the mm-hmm. first one? Yep. Um, Ooh, and I I saw Jackie Brown because it was on HBO. Nice. And I was, I don't know, in my early teens, probably. Oh, and, and you were waiting for real sex to come on? <laughs> Definitely. Taxi and cab confessions. I remember the opening, and I told you this before we started recording. the The opening of that movie is so burned into my brain with, um, with uh, oh my god, I can't think of her name. The actor Pam Greer. Oh, thank you. Yes, with yes. Pam Greer on the People Mover in LAX in front of the tile mural wall, the mosaic yep. wall, with across 110th Street playing in the background. And it's just this really cool long shot of her just moving in front of the tile and this song playing over it that I instantly, from that opening shot, I was hooked into this movie. I had no idea what this movie was going to be, but <laughs> somehow it set the tone for me, if that makes sense. Like yeah. It's, it, it set, like, this movie is fucking cooler than Freddie Jackson sipping a milkshake. <laughs> <laughs> to Bill, quote Outcast, if Bill Withers walked into your house with a cuvassier and a cigar and just sat down, that's how cool this movie. That is, I was suddenly wearing a smoking jacket, and you didn't I, even own a smoking jacket. I was, I was quoting lines like uh, Anthony Michael Hall in Weird Science in the Jazz Club. <laughs> like all of a sudden, oh, I was oh. that guy. <coughs> I don't know. Don't be what, that guy. I don't know what happened. But it it mesmerized me. And then, of course, as the movie went on, it only got that much better. I mean, you've got amazing performances from De Niro, Sam Jackson, Pam Greer. Um, Isn't them, uh No, not Kevin Costner. Uh, Michael Keaton. Isn't Michael Keaton in that, too? Is he in that? I don't remember. Hold on. Keep talking about how much you love Jackie Brown. Okay. I'm going to look up. I'm going to look it up. I Very think possibly. Um, but... That movie, and it's like this really cool, like low key seventies black exploitation crime thriller. And I love whenever. Okay, this is and this is something we can dive into. I was right, Michael Keaton, Ray Nicolette in nice. that movie. Okay. Um, but one of the things that I truly gravitate towards when it comes to the Tarantino movies, yeah, I I enjoy the run of them. You know, I can agree with a lot of people that his his last handful haven't been as good as some of his earlier ones, but what? I, find va- I find value in 
Oh so God, we've got them. so much to, to discuss when we have an actual Tarantino uh, <laughs> filmography discussion. Well, oh, hold on. I, I'm actually curious to to talk about that. But uh, where was I going with this? I don't remember where I was going with this. Uh, I was I just saying you... that. Uh... Ah, fuck! I lost it. What? What? Uh, what? <laughs> what do you okay. mean? I'm do sorry. You, do you think his later movies were better than the original ones? I don't think they were better, but I think um, they stand. I'd say they stand shoulder to shoulder with some of his earlier work. I think Django may be one of the best movies I've seen in the past 20 years. I think it is. I, I think really Django like Unchained Django. is a next level, not only for mixing the, you know, kind of spaghetti Western aesthetic right. with a hip hop undertone mixed with the whole race relations. I thought it was just a really, really interestingly cool way to address some of those things, but to also just give you this, like, flat-out, badass motherfucker revenge flick. You know know, what I mean? And and you know what? I'm actually kind of thinking now, because in my head I had that idea of his later movies aren't as good, but then again I'm thinking about them, and I really dug Inglorious Bastards. I did the milk bit at the beginning of this. One of the better openings, one of the best Michael Fassbender introductions ever. Um, For sure. And Hateful then, Eight was Hateful fantastic, Eight's super good. And I'm gonna talk to uh, I'm gonna talk a lot about Hateful Eight on this episode. Their soundtrack is so good. Uh, what that score. That, what's that guy's name? Um, uh, Maricone, Mor- Morricone, the guy who uh-huh. did uh, the guy who did Good, Bad, and the Ugly, and the Thing. Any Ennio Morricone? Yeah, Ennio Morricone, Mar- yep. Morricone, something like that. He that score is so good. Okay, you know what? I take it back. I just love all of Quentin Tarantino's movies. That's he, what I'm saying. He can be an asshole, and as of late, he has personally gotten a bad rep in the press. <laughs> sure, but his movies, I do like. I'm can't not, we, I can't we also, take that back. We also have to address. Let's be fair too, uh, not to just like stop on every one of your statements, but Tarantino has kind of always been that guy for Hollywood. Yeah. He's always been that kind of like. It's widely known about his creepy foot fetish. It's widely right. known that he has some womanizing kind of sexist tendencies. It's widely known that his films have always been extremely controversial because they come from literally one of the nerdiest white guys on the face of the planet <laughs> who for some reason continually insists on speaking about the black experience. It's it's so he's always kind of been that dude. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think over time that has somehow graded on me and almost like become I get it. in my mind layered in with my opinions of his films over time. Well, when, that's why I wasn't and what, I what, wasn't I'm, discounting what you were saying at all. You're totally right. <laughs> I mean, he's kind of a he's kind of a shitheel when it comes to those things. Well, and then there was that Uma Thurman stuff. Do you remember do you remember that coming out yeah. about like him almost killing her in the car and yeah, a whole bunch of stuff. But weirdly enough, her her and him still have like a close relationship, and they're like I, talking I, about. I just read an article today that said her and him were talking about uh, Kill Bill a Kill Bill Three. I read that article too, and it was like, okay, well, I guess it can't be all that bad, <laughs> right? So it's one of those. It, I or, will say this definitively to Quentin Tarantino, uh, from one Quentin to another Quentin. <laughs> I don't know what you're doing. I don't know how you're doing it. But I sure as hell enjoy what the hell you're doing. <laughs> you know what? That that is the uh, official high five stance. 
You know what I mean? I can totally get behind that is that I'm not, and and I fear, well, not really fear it all falling apart because I guess is if he's going to be in the limelight, it's already kind of happened. Sure. And it hasn't all crumbled in on him like it does to some. Sure. So whatever you're doing, man, keep it going. Keep it going because it's working. It's working. And I'm excited about your Star Trek movie and I don't really care about Star Trek movies. Yeah. So, okay. So that's, that's a real question. So, Speaking of Quentin Tarantino movies, and I know we're talking soundtracks, and this kind of ties into that. Well, I mean, he um, layers in the music so it's in the DNA of his film. So, we so can't that was going to be my question, one. because or not even my question, but my statement. I think a reason that music plays so integrally into his films are because he is the genesis for his films. He has written yeah. every movie that he has directed. And so from that standpoint, you and I, as as fellow writers, as right. writers who are probably as good as Tarantino, at least if, if you ask anybody, they probably will agree. If you likely. ask any of our moms, they will agree. And mine will even say who's Tarantino. <laughs> exactly. And we will say, well, don't it worry about matter. it because we're better. Than Obviously, him. it doesn't matter. You've uh, heard of me and you've not heard of him. And you were like, oh, Qu- who, who's Quentin? That's Q from <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, you know who that he guy is. I do that podcast thing with on yeah. the Facebooks. Um, but the, the real thing is, and my point to that was, you and I have, even when we're writing our comic book, right? Right. We have continually referenced music throughout. Well, and to we kind have of found like, that we listen to the same type of music as we're writing it. To get into that headspace. Yeah. So I have zero doubt that when Quentin Tarantino, I, I do not feel like I'm going out on a limb at all when I say when Quentin Tarantino are, is writing these films, he already has the soundtrack playing in his yeah. head to help with the mood and tone of the scenes that he's writing. I would totally agree. Or, or at least he has a concept of what it sounds like. So he may not have the exact sure. you know, score for the crazy eights for Kill Bill, but sure. he knows it's going to be this type of upbeat, speed, you know, Japanese-inspired right. pop, you know, whatever. And, and I feel like... what it's going to look, feel like. I feel like that is probably the single most reason that his... Like just like you said a few seconds ago, his soundtracks are so intrinsically infused into the movies that they are a part of. Right. That it feels like you can't really talk about one without the other. Like the music makes those scenes and those scenes makes that use of that music. Well, you know what I mean? And to I'll piggyback off something you said earlier and then lead into the point I want to make, but so you had mentioned the first Quentin Tarantino movie you saw was uh, Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown. My very first one, I remember this, was Reservoir Dogs. Sure. Because me and a buddy were going through the AFI Top 100 movies like to watch Before You Die. Nerd. List. Yep. Uh, one su- <laughs> Totally. Un- yeah. Unabashedly. But we went through that list one summer and watched everything on the list. And nice. Reservoir Dogs was on that list. Sure. And I remember watching that movie and seeing... And there's going to sound lame, but like how cool that movie was. And I think that's one Mm -hmm. thing that Quentin Tarantino really established with his style is how cool, and I'm using air quotes, movies can be. Sure. And the music was a part of that. But with Reservoir Dogs, one scene in particular, obviously, that, you know, has to be talked about is the ear scene. Of course. And you cannot talk about that scene without talking about 
the music that goes along with it because it's part of that scene. It's almost like the scene in um, in uh, uh, Silence of the Lambs when he pushes his dick back and like. Oh, the wild, wild yeah. horses, wild horses. Song. Yeah. You can't hear that song now without thinking of that scene and vice For versa. Sure. And it's the same type of thing with, uh, you know, you got stuck in the middle with you. If I hear stuck in the middle with you on the radio in another movie, it doesn't matter. Well, I'm thinking reservoir dogs and Michael and Michael holding that ear. Can we, before we jump off of that, I have to say that once I did see reservoir dogs, that scene has inspired something in me that I have continually uh, sought after and included in everything that I've written ever since. And that is, that scene cemented my love of the juxtaposition of a happy, upbeat song to a horrifically gruesome moment. Yes. That was the first time that I ever really remember seeing that and it's sticking in my brain of like, whoa, it creates such a weird, uneasy feeling when you're watching something horrific, but you're hearing this really jaunty, like happy <laughs> yes. tune. And it is something that like I've seen it. A million movies have done it since then. TV shows have done it. All forms of media have done it. But it is probably one of my favorite tropes now. And the biggest, best example of it that I still feel is the stuck in the middle yeah. scene from Reservoir Dogs. Well, I think you know another good one um, that uh, is the beginning of Zombieland. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. That's the Metallica song, isn't it? Yes, but it's still it's like a slow it's a slower song and it's totally. the slow motion gore and the zombies and and the death and the mutilation but set to that song. I'm I I cannot agree more with that statement. Now I don't know and I wouldn't be able to claim that I don't know if like Quentin Tarantino sort of made that a more mainstream thing, but sure. I can tell you I noticed it more with him than anybody else. Sure, absolutely, and that's that was kind of my statement was that was the first time in memory that I can recall seeing that pairing of that right. like, happy song with something like really fucked up and gruesome. Right. Well, and, and the other thing that, that like I really love about the way Quentin Tarantino uses music. And this is the statement that I actually remember I was trying to make earlier is that I find myself gravitating more towards when he does crime movies. Sure. And I know that you can always find an angle, which all of his movies are kind of crime movies. But, you know, like the Jackie Brown, Reservoir Dog, Pulp Fiction, those crime caper movies I very much enjoy. And I think one of the reasons is that the music that goes along with those movies is just super cool. And with Reservoir Dogs, there's always these songs that I'm not familiar with or that Quentin uses in a way that that kind of solidifies them in my mind. Like the beginning of Reservoir Dogs, I don't remember the name of the song, but the boom, 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 boom. Boom, boom, beep, doom, bum, ba, da, doom, bum. Sure. I can't hear that song without thinking of his movies now when that song's been around for much longer than his films. For sure. Well, that was okay. Before Guardians of the Galaxy came out and made Hooked on a Feeling cool, yep. I remember it from Reservoir Dogs. That was one of the first uses that I remember hearing the Hooked on a Feeling. Oh, that's right. And I was just like, 
oh shit, this is so fucking cool, man. And then here we are, you know, when did when did uh, Reservoir Dogs come out? Early 90s? Yeah. Here we are 20 years later, and it's happening all over again. And that was one of the things that Guardians of the Galaxy people gravitated to was they were like, oh shit, James Gunn is putting all these like classic, cool quote unquote the songs cool, the playlist into the, a the soundtrack and it's like tape lists it's like yeah tarantino started this and he's been doing that shit for years well and you, you know, know we I mentioned mean? uh him influencing the likes of like edgar wright but i would Absolutely. say james gunn definitely falls in that category 100 I mean, all the way back to his uh early more irreverent films like uh you know super or uh oh man what was that one with uh the alien? slither slither thank you like, even all the way back to there, you could tell that sort of cool irreverence that they adopted from Tarantino. Oh, for sure. I mean, you. I even lean into um, the soundtracks are equally as interesting, and oh, I'm probably going to get flack for this, but Kevin Smith's oeuvre. Mm, um, yeah. In his earlier stuff, Mallrats, Chasing Amy clerks the soundtracks meant a lot and they yeah. usually played a lot of like really kind of current counterculture music and i and i, I would, would i would absolute as much as i love kevin smith and if you're listening to this which you probably are kevin smith because uh, why wouldn't you uh if you're listening to this i love you a lot but i have got to say and i think you would even say that credit has to be given to quentin tarantino has you, to be. You were absolutely inspired by that. Even you constantly rag yourself and you're like, I am not the filmmaker everybody thinks I am. I'm just a I'm just a dude who got lucky and surrounded himself times. with people that were smarter than me. Um but Tarantino has such this intrinsic and I think you touched on it and you really nailed it when you said it's just this vibe of laissez-faire cool right that well, just like everything is just dripping with like there's badass every scene <laughs> every line of dialogue <laughs> delivered you're like that was fucking cool man that was I okay I, i'm so glad that's just fucking cool man that that attitude uh, um I think is something that, that Tarantino at least should get some credit for. And I'm going to put on my like film studies douche hat for a second because there are a lot of tones in the music shifts that come and it, it can go all the way back to like the French new wave when a bunch of film critics were just like, we can make movies better than you. And then they just for came sure. out with all these, it was just the tone of, I am so much better than all of you, which was a heightened tone for indie films, but basically became the we're better than everybody indie films tone. Oh, definitely. And then you had the Spielbergs and the big blockbuster movies that were almost untouchable. These were just like epic seismic events. But then Quentin Tarantino came along in the early 90s and was just like, do you want to play with my toys with me? Here's a bunch of stuff that I like that I think you'll like too. And that tone of... This is cool because I think it's cool and I'm going to make it cool felt so much more attainable than some of the other kind of film movements that had been around. And since then, the idea of approachability and coolness in the indie scene, I think, can stem a lot from what he did. I, I couldn't disagree with any of the points that you just made. I absolutely 100 percent agree with that fact that 
that Quentin Tarantino has made cool accessible. Which he's is, made a lot of genres that were normally not accessible accessible. Um, he has taken kind of these film genres that were maybe overlooked or were um, undervalued. I guess is the best way to right. describe, especially like the black exploitation stuff. The really like. The really Italian spaghetti western stuff, yes, or the Grindhouse, like just he or loves the stuff. he loves the things that live just in the sewers of popular culture. But I think he takes them and he elevates them, mm-hmm. and then he makes them accessible to the common layman. You right. know what I mean? Who can who can feel like, oh, I like Grindhouse movies. When you're watching Grindhouse, to be fair, Grindhouse is an homage. It's a pastiche. Yes, of of grindhouse movies it is it itself is not actually a grindhouse movie if you go to watch a grindhouse movie after watching the grindhouse set of films you will probably be shocked and appalled at what you find if you are expecting quentin tarantino and robert rodriguez's version of a grindhouse movie. here here's a good analogy Watching uh, Quentin Tarantino's Grindhouse movie and then seeing a real Grindhouse movie is like watching Home Improvement and then going to see Tim Allen do stand up live. Right. Or you're be- not going to, or, or uh, Bob Saget. That's it's what I was about to say. Full House. It's watching Full House and then seeing Bob Saget lot do yeah. his stand up bit, you will be shocked and appalled. That's, that's the difference. Now, now, having said that, let me put it out there. I freaking love the Grindhouse movies sure. that they did. Now, of course. I, I appreciate the Grindhouse movies that they were homaging to, but Planet Terror and, uh, what was it? Death uh, Proof. Death Proof. Super fun. Super fun. And that's kind of the thing. Like I, like I said, he makes these uh, genre films that were normally kind of only appreciated and loved by this small niche of people. Right. He opens them up in a way that allows... The the everyman or the the more common you know uh, non cinemaphile right. to enjoy it and have a taste of that flavor of this is what came from it you know what I mean now I do want to put a pin right here because I can hear the internet exploding and sure. they're gonna say guys have you even heard of Quentin Tarantino he is the douchiest art like I'm gonna shove every reference into every movie and make these super deep blah 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 as, yeah. as, as anybody and to that I say you're a hundred percent right and they can be enjoyed on that level but what's super impressive is no one's gonna go watch um, like a hundred cigarettes and have an enjoyable time you have to appreciate art indie films on the level that they want to be appreciated at but sure. Quentin Tarantino makes movies that can be appreciated on a super surface level. Or if you want to hunt down all 10,000 references and homages and things that he meticulously put in there, you can do that too. And that's why it's impressive. Now, having said that, again, I'm not justifying anything the man has done as a personal human being. He probably is a creep and a douchebag and maybe a little bit racist. I don't know. I'm talking about his body of work, though. Right. And that's that's what we're saying. So, like... You know, uh, my introduction to some of these genres of films were through Quentin Tarantino. I can openly say that. And then I went back and checked out some of these. Now, I had the opposite reaction of what some people may. Instead of being like, whoa, this isn't at all like. I was like, whoa, 
this is even more hardcore yeah. than what he was doing. I'm super into it. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, so a lot of these, like I said, and I play with the term black exploitation a lot because I feel like Tarantino really rode that line, especially with Jackie Brown. He revisited it again. It was like a black exploitation mixed with a spaghetti western for Django. Um, that film genre as a whole uh, is super fucking fascinating. Yes. And I would highly encourage everyone. I mean, I know we kind of currently have a resurgence in um, black filmmaker led cinema. Um, which is absolutely fantastic. I love it. I love that we're getting that voice again. But I will say, and I know that most people would say, again, well, they haven't had it. Well, they haven't had it in mainstream cinema for sure. But there was a time during the 70s and 80s where they were making the most cutting-edge, yeah. interesting cinema out there the most hard-hitting weird pulpy like experimental trippy shit and um as a white dude who has no frame of reference on uh black culture it was enlightening to go back and watch these ideas coming out of um folks that had a totally different perspective on the world than mine yeah no, I is, that, I is that fair? Is that too much? Or is I, that... I would say that's a hundred percent fair, and I wouldn't put try and put it any better. I think that cool. I think that was great. Like again, and it's and it's weird, you know. We're in the we're in a kind of a I don't want to say a society now, but we're in a a time when walking that line of acknowledgement and representation and who can tell which stories, it, it's all muddled and it's weird. But what I can say is that. Quentin Tarantino was one of the first filmmakers that I saw that made accessible indie movies that were music driven and that appealed so much to me. Like I said, I can't I can't separate in my mind the the positive feelings I have about Reservoir Dogs and disassociate them from the songs that are in that movie. Well, we can also say, I mean, for those of uh, for those listeners who don't know, Jay, you are most definitely the music nerd out of the I, two of us. I very much enjoy music. So I know for a fact how much from firsthand experience of watching movies with you, I know how much a soundtrack or a well-placed music score or sting can totally change a film for you. Well, and I mean, and we've talked about it on this podcast before, but I'll, I'll say it and I will, uh, I will overlook a lot of faults that a movie may have if the music can elevate the experience for me. And like a movie like Baby Driver, it's almost hard for me to objectively review the film Baby Driver because sure. I like the way the mu music is integrated so well. And, uh, of course, I consider that a layer of the finished art project, so it is necessary. Sure. But that movie, I have a hard time objectively reviewing because the music is so good and oh, it's so perfect. And that movie Every step does not exist without these movies. Oh, it doesn't. It doesn't. And that's, that's one of the things that, like I said, I love that influence that has been given because, you know, even if you've, 
you are a, a film viewer that like was really into Tarantino when you first started getting into film and then have moved on and you appreciate people, you know, like the Edgar Wrights of the world and the, and the James Gunn's great. Awesome. I'm glad he was in that mix for you. Like, sure. and, and to, to look at his movies, I mean, we haven't really even talked about Pulp Fiction, but my God, the dance sequence in Pulp Fiction, uh, with the, yeah. like the, with the backwards, like the fingers and everything about the John Travolta and um, and Uma Thurman scenes is music driven well, and the, can't that, be separated. That twist part, the the dance competition you're talking about, is the, uh, Chuck Berry's "You Never Can Tell." Right, is the song that's playing, and that that song punctuates that scene and mood that you're getting between John Travolta and Uma Thurman. So her, the uh, Vincent and Mia yeah. in that moment, and it's so perfect. It it feels um, s- sexy and and weird, and that's kind of what's happening in this in that scene in this movie. You've got Vincent Vega and you've got Mia Wallace, who Vincent is literally just like looking out looking out for her and protecting her per. Uh, uh, her husband's orders, um, um, and yes, Marcellus Wallace. By Marcellus way. Wallace, thank you. And instead, in this moment, and this is gonna sound weird, taking another deep dive here. This song and the use during this dance competition. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where it's like a first date with a girl, and things are going well, and you kind of feel that connection and that spark, right? Even if there shouldn't be one in that moment, it's it's happening. Right. That use of music in this scene is that spark between their characters. He shouldn't be feeling that way. She shouldn't be putting those vibes out there. But that song punctuates the existence of that spark that's right. happening. And it's fucking perfect it's, it's just it and it, it just tastes so good and the thing about it i want to add another layer to that is just another way that quentin tarantino was so brilliant in the use of m- music in that scene is the fact that it's john travolta at all because getting started he was a dancer and everyone knows you know obviously from greece and from saturday night fever and all the dance moves that he does and so to see him in a movie like this where he is dancing but him to be dancing so I don't want to say poorly, but tight, like closely, he's barely doing anything, but it's like misusing the John Travolta dance skills in a dance scene with a mu- with, with the, with a song that embodies what that scene's trying to convey. And he could, ju- you just see him connect with it, even though he's not trying to. Right. Exactly. Now to speak of another just like epic moment and i know we've talked about this this movie a couple times it's come up django unchained end of the movie you get the sick ass shoot up of calvin candy's plantation oh man set to a mashup of james brown's the payback and tupac's untouchable yeah and it is pretty cool so wickedly awesome and that's what i'm talking about it infused (laughs) this like because uh, that shit is so fucking gangster. Like, there's no, there's no other way to put it. Is like, it. Of course, it felt good having some James Brown in there. Of course, like, of course. To throw in the Tupac just adds this level of 
yeah, fuck yeah, motherfucker. Like, <laughs> shoot up that fucking place. You know what I mean? Like, it got you so hype and on board with what was going on yes. that, like I said, it, it just, it really infused this tone into that moment. And let's imagine that moment, take those songs out, and let's just put a score over it. Yeah. And the, the vibe is totally different. If you just put a traditional film score over that that Calvin Candy just shoot up massacre uh-huh. scene you get a totally different vibe you get a totally different feeling well and and not only that and i want to can i can i take a leap with you q just for for sure. a second i want to we've been talking about deep themes and deep uses of music and how it embodies it and i want to take another leap so one of the things we talked about especially with hateful eight and um the inyo morricone score yep he was so big in the spaghetti westerns because his style of music for you know the good, bad, and the ugly, um, a fistful of dollars, everything that Leone did pretty much, the uses the Marconi Marconi score, and he's so iconic in the the use of music in spaghetti westerns. So yes. Tarantino has gone on record as saying that he's you know spaghetti westerns are some of his favorite movies. And he has said, I think I saw an interview where he was saying he wanted Pulp Fiction to be the rock and roll version of a spaghetti western. And the music he chose was his, like, current day rock and roll homage to Marconi, which is awesome. So you get get things like Chuck Berry and Dusty Springfield and, you know, the songs that you were mentioning, like, that they were dancing to. Everything on the Pulp Fiction soundtrack is so perfectly ingrained into the DNA just like with spaghetti westerns and the Marconi scores. Sure. And that is such an impressive feat when everyone thinks of, you know, movie scores or Michael Giambini mu- music that he's going to make everything for Disney and everything for Marvel. They all kind of sound the same. Well, he figured I- out a way to layer in radio and pop songs. I agree with that 100% and I don't want to get too far away from the hateful 8 because there's a really interesting fact. So Ennio Morricone, um, first off, Hateful Eight, as you said, Tarantino was so inspired by his soundtracks for westerns because he was kind of synonymous with these spaghetti westerns. Yeah, especially the Sergio Leone stuff. Exactly. He was so enamored that you said he, he it inspired him to create his own kind of homage soundtrack to that. Now, when he got Ennio to come and do the soundtrack for Hateful Eight, it was or the score for Hateful Eight. It was the first Western that he had scored in thirty years. Yeah, it was okay. a big deal that he came back. And then on top of that, I don't know if you know this, but Ennio Marcone wrote the score for John Carpenter's The Thing. Yes, I did. I mentioned that earlier that those were the some of the bigger ones he had done. And he had he wrote the Hateful Eight score closer to the score for The Thing than he did for his classic Westerns that he had done. Has he, has he said that? That's all awesome. he has. He That's has. Awesome. And he said the intention was to give you that chilly claustrophobic feel like trapped he, in a building with people. I don't know. Exactly. Just That's like awesome. the thing. That's and, so cool. And exactly. Cause it adds that additional layer of cool to it. You know what I mean? Like it, in intrinsically as film fans that's another one of those like easter eggs for cinephiles exactly like that's you, just you so listen deep. to that soundtrack you listen to that score and your brain automatically references the thing 
which is going to invoke that feeling in you. And that's just fucking brilliant, man. Well, that is so brilliant. And not even I, I've got to like just heap some praise on as well. And I'm going to go back to like Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. But like the and I don't even know the name of the song. The yeah, yeah. The surfing song or whatever. Yep. Uh-huh. To start Pulp Fiction with that on the freeze frame of I'm going to kill you motherfuckers or whatever. To start to do it that way, and then to transition the movie using radio dials, like he transitioned a scene using music, which exactly. is brilliant because it's not a fade cut. It's just sort of like the radio dials changing, and when it lands on whatever song is playing, it's then now you're with Jules and uh, Vincent, um, Vincent in the car, and they're listening to that song, right? And it was them changing the. Ra- it's just the way that he uses. It. I actually think. Um, if I remember correctly, the Reservoir Dogs soundtrack is basically an entire radio show narrated by Stephen Wright. What? I didn't realize that. So, yeah, like the the Stephen Wright radio show. Oh, yeah, you're right. K-Billy's yeah. Super Sounds of the 70s I, Weekend. I knew it because he, he narrates in between each of the songs, and Tarantino used that as like a score in the background was his his radio show over the course of however long the movie was going on. Yeah, it says since the entire narrative, because I'm looking at a thing right now, since the entire narrative takes place over the course of a single weekend, the whole soundtrack revolves around a fictional radio show called K. Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s Weekend with comic Stephen Wright playing the DJ. You fucking nailed it. And just what what director in the 90s was layering, thinking of the music in that deep of a layer outside someone making an art film when the music was like the main focus? Also earlier when you said you were you were referencing you said you didn't know the name of the song that opens uh the yeah, opening the title song No the opening like you were like it starts with that like kind of boom like the Oh oh yes yes and the slow-mo shot and everything Yes that is uh Little Green Bag That's is the, the name boom, of the song by a band called George Baker Selections Love it Actually, actually, I think I've heard of that band. Or my dad little, would be little. My green, dad would be ashamed that I can't name like all the band members. Little Green Bag. Little and Green then, Bag. Oh, it's uh, so good though. But yeah, that I mean that one's sick. Um, and you know, all the way back to like I had said that opening scene for me. I mean, because that sets the tone for Reservoir Dogs right out of the gate. You you feel it you're you're in right. there you're in that story well, just way jackie brown just the way jackie right brown out of the gate yep. right out of the literal gate in yes, an airport the airport gate <laughs> right out of the literal gate you are in the world you're in there yeah. you you understand this character you kind of get where she's going and it's it's fucking it's fucking brilliant the hateful eight uh we we can't obviously move away without talking about the kill bill soundtrack I mean, yeah, no, it's it's great. Um, so, Kill Bill soundtrack with music composed by the RZA, <laughs> right? Oh, I forgot about that. Um, because it's fucking Tarantino samurai movie, and everybody knows you can't have a samurai movie without the Wu Tang Clan. I mean, who could? Who could? Um, you know, notoriously m- massive fans of the samurai genre. Right. The Wu-Tang Clan ha- has often uh, themed their own albums 
and concepts around the samurai lore and legends and kung fu movies. And weirdly enough, I just have to mention this. Uh, I've been doing uh, my snoozema stuff lately where I go to sleep I've to bad movies. I've been seeing that. Why have you not been doing that from the high five page, by the way? I, I should do both. I can do both. You should I'll... because I feel like the world... <clears throat> Needs the more world snoozema. needs to understand what snoozema is, and I feel like for uh, for anyone listening who doesn't, um, what I call snoozema or my bedtime blockbusters are I like to go to sleep to bad movies, but not like terribly bad movies that you get interested in and in, and end up watching, but movies so bad that you don't mind rolling over and closing your eyes while watching. Sure. And one of them that I did recently was GI Joe Retaliation. Which I have never seen. Well, here, here's all you need to know about it. The RZA plays a blind samurai martial arts tutor that teaches Snake Eyes how to be awesome. That sounds awesome. And where does this movie get not bad? Not great. <laughs> oh, it's not. It's not awesome. But it's better than the original GI Joe movie. But this one has the rock in it, so sure. it's always going to be better. So not to jump too far away from Kill Bill. Because RZA did the soundtrack, but one of my favorite scenes in that movie has the opening credits track has uh, Nancy Sinatra's "Bang Bang." Oh yeah! Oh that mo- that music is so good in that movie. And once again, that sets the fucking tone for that movie. I'll tell you. Know you what I mean, I was gonna mention this earlier, but Quentin Tarantino has a knack for starting a movie perfectly. Agreed. Like, just you know, Reservoir Dogs we mentioned, Jackie Brown we mentioned, Kill Bill we just mentioned. I would also say that the monologue, and whether it's music or monologue, like the monologue at the beginning of um, Inglorious Bastards is amazing. The carriage ride conversation at the beginning of Hateful Eight is also pretty great. So he has this knack for starting out movies and immediately giving you what you need to hook you for the rest of the, well, the journey. Can we say, since we've referenced these other movies and their inspiration, the feeling I get from the opening of a Tarantino movie with one of these songs was the exact same fucking thing that happened when I watched the opening scene of the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie and yeah. Come and Get Your Love started playing. Yep. And it was just Peter Quill dancing around on the planet singing the song. And then, boom, you get like the hard credit yeah. titles that comes up. That felt so fucking Tarantino. Yeah. I was just like, oh, God. and But it had me. Yeah. Like instantly, I was like, I don't care what comes after this. I am I'm, I'm in so it. I'm in with this. for this ride. And you even referenced it for Edgar Wright. It's the same shit for Baby Driver. That oh, song man. where he's walking down the street and he's got his headphones in and he's listening to the music. Even All before th- that, with the with the car, with the with the chase scene, exactly set to bell bottoms. But you've got it's just this awesome vibe that instantly yeah. you're like and i'm in for the rest of the movie i don't know what happens after this but whatever is coming i am in and i i don't think i mean it's no secret to anybody listening who likes movies that music is an integral part of it and i think that's why it's so fun to talk about because no movie unless it's you know uh a John Krasinski horror movie is going to be dead silent like you have to have music whether you're thinking about it or not you sure. know but Tarantino has found a way to use music to be part of his style. Like if you were to describe a PT Anderson movie, 
you would describe a lot of great things about his cinematography and his storytelling and the way that he, you know, he, he shoots his, uh, his, his, uh, his actors and the way that the performances he gets out of people. Or if you were talking about old Bergman films, you talk about the way that he did close-ups or Alfred Hitchcock, the way that he did horror. But when you talk about Quentin Tarantino, it's inevitable that you'll talk about the way he uses music, which is a credit to how he directs and to the style that he is known for. Oh, 100%. Now, uh, I got to talk. We got to hit two more movies, and then I think we're officially ready to list. Yeah, I think we're we're pretty close. So the two movies I want to reference, because I want to call out some songs, because I want to put these fresh in our head when we go to decide the best soundtracks, okay? I want right. to put these moments fresh in our head. One of them, like you said, is a is a really awesome moment that sets the tone for Pulp Fiction, right? Mm-hmm. So after uh, Jules and Vincent leave the diner and they're in oh, the car, yeah. you get Jungle Boogie. Yeah, you do. And it once again is such a cool, like fucking it's fun cool, vibe it's that's a cool going song, on. But it works and it, it makes the scene better. Exactly, exactly. So we've got to remember. I know we've talked Pulp Fiction before, but that's a really good one. And then one of the movies we haven't really touched on song wise, we've mentioned I think passingly, is Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, that they have maybe one of the best David Bowie song uses ever, which is uh, putting out fire or cat people putting out fire from the movie Cat no People. Cat people, yeah, which is used over the scene of Nazis burning. <laughs> Which is which is pretty great. Which, which is, pretty is great. awesome. <laughs> yeah. And for whatever reason, the movie Cat People sucks balls. <laughs> but but at least this, this came out of it. This song that came out of that movie so perfectly <laughs> is used in this scene that it transcends that shitty movie of which it was birthed. Um, because. This was such a cool, like I said, I don't know how to describe it other than, I mean, let's be honest. It's always fun to watch Nazis burn. Right. But <laughs> somehow it made watching Nazis burn funner. More fun. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it added some pep to it, really. Yeah. Never have I had so much fun watching Nazis immolate. <laughs> <laughs> Said everyone. Um. So I just wanted to touch on those movies before we get into listing and we're boiling down the best soundtracks of a Tarantino film. No, I love it. And honestly, I'm glad you brought it up. Like for, you know, a list like this, um, we don't really get to talk about uh, Inglorious Bastards as much because it's I mean, uh, as scores go, it's fine. You know, and and that wasn't what he was doing with that movie. So but I love that movie and I'm glad we got to talk about it. Exactly. Um, You know, so I think I mean, I think we're ready for a list we've talked about pretty much all eight that exist right now all right hold on i'm gonna cue us in and set the tone for this list are you Let's ready do it hold on oh yeah you feel that vibe i love it it's so cool it's time to list this is where we make a list the list three two all right, so now that we've set the tone yeah, for the list. list and we're in the list, it's time to take Tarantino's masterwork of nine films thus far. 
Well, mm-hmm. nine films, including the today's releasing. Which we haven't really, we haven't, one, we haven't seen, so we can't include in this list. But I know. From what I've seen of the trailers, I'm thinking it's like a Reservoir Pulp Fiction-esque tra- oh, soundtrack. Oh, for sure. I mean, and they've I'm used awesome happy. songs yeah. in the trailers so far. <laughs> Um, and it's about the entertainment industry, so I can't imagine it's anything but spectacular. But I will say this. Part of the reason that ultimately I know we didn't want to do it because everybody's doing it and we're hipster like that. But one of the reasons that really pushed me to not want to do the listing of the Tarantino movies is I want him to finish his 10. Yeah. And then I want to rank them. And want to rank all of them. I want to rank all yeah. of them. I know we've got uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood dropping today, mm-hmm. but maybe the Star Trek movie being his 10th movie. It, it keeps going back and forth. Maybe, but he we're, we've, we're getting 10. That was kind yeah. of the thing. 10 and he's out. Supposedly. Like the insane clown posse. 10 right. and out. Isn't that cool? That's also, what a real Babe Ruth moment. Now, he's like thing. pointing to the fences, 10 movies, and I'm fucking out, guys. He's got to be, he, that's the thing, though. He's got to stick to it, and that's what's going to suck about it, because everyone's going to be... It, I'm sure he'll do it after the 10th and say, I'm out, everybody. But then, like, 20 years later... He's got to still be out? Yeah, he's got to stay out. Like He, he can't, can't come back 10. and be like, all right, here's number 11. 10 and done. It's got to be like friends. 10 right. and out. 10 and out. No reunion. No TV special. 10 and out. I just... I have a feeling this, uh, this may be, like, a really bold statement, but I'm putting it on record. I think whatever movie ends up being Tarantino's 10th movie, that shit... We're looking Avengers level numbers for the for people coming out to see that shit in the. Theater. I hope, because like hope. that is much like the culmination of the MCU. That's the culmination of his body of work. And you by know that what I time, mean? it will be about twenty five or thirty years worth of cinema. That's what I'm saying. Never been done in history has a has a director come out and been like, "I'm giving you ten films, all written and directed by me, and they're and all f- going to be pretty good." And then I'm fucking out. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's all you get. And I'm done. Wipe my hands and I'm done. Now, here's the catch, though. I did hear if Star Trek ends up being his 10th, it will be the first one that he did not write. Which that and that's where people are saying the loophole may come in is that he may go back on it and say no I meant ten that I write and direct so there's one more after Star Trek right that's what I've heard but I'd be fine we, with that I'd be honestly I'd be fine with that too because the idea of the ten that I have written and directed is more appealing to me than I was a running gun studio for hire director for four sure. days which so, is not the case with him but so you are on board with me. That we will wait to do a Tarantino retrospective until we get until to ten. Until he has retired. Perfect. But and now we'll I, I'm fine to do other versions of like you know top five Quentin Tarantino characters or right. opening scenes since we've talked about for that. sure. But right now we're doing soundtracks. Right now we're doing soundtracks. Now, do you want to do a sound like? Okay, let me ask the question. Sure. Do you want to do the soundtrack as a whole, like the album, or do you want to do? rank the movies based on how the music is used in the film and if it makes it better. I think we got to do albums. Okay, so the, just the album itself. Yep. So something like, uh, and I'll just put this out here because in my opinion it wouldn't be on the list, but sure. like Inglorious Bastards, even though it not has on that the amazing list. David Bowie song and it's not one of on the, the best moments, yep. the whole not album, the not nope. great. I'm going to go ahead and give you an example of what would be on the list. <coughs> For it. me, undoubtedly... The Hateful Eight is on the list. I would agree. 
Its score is amazing. It won an Academy Award. And just the the sheer fact of what you mentioned before, the of Marconi not having done a western in thirty years, and then tying and- it knowingly to his uh, the thing soundtrack because of the similarities in location, setting, and tone. Yeah. Was just brilliant. That alone, I think, puts it on the list. I don't know where yet, but it's it's. I can't disagree. It's on there. That's one that's on there for me. What do you got that you want to put on there? I I've mentioned it, and I think it's you know it's going to be high on the list for me. But Reservoir Dogs for sure. It's one. It was my first introduction, so there's nostalgia to it. But just the scenes that I can't get out of my head are so inextricably tied to the music. That it's got to be on it for me. I'm with you. I'm going to throw out Pulp Fiction. Oh, I thought you were going to say Jackie Brown. I would definitely say Jackie Brown. Well, Jackie Brown is on there, too. They're both on there. I'm just, like, dramatically drawing it out. (laughs) So you can add two from me, then. I would would definitely say uh, Jackie Brown. Jackie Um, Brown and Pulp Fiction. Yeah. And Um, then we've got one more... Out of the five, I would I'm gonna put a vote out, and you can either like accept. I think personally, we're between uh, Django and Kill Bill. Yes. Now, hmm, I I'm torn on this one because I think the the variety of music in Kill Bill is probably greater. I know because there's like the Nancy Sinatra song, but then there's the five, six, seven, eight song, and RZA did the rest. But for me, I think when I'm thinking of a soundtrack as a whole, I don't know. The, well, I guess I'm I'm relating the the music of Django to the movie. I don't know, man. Of just soundtrack with taking the movie out of it. If the movie were involved, I would say 100 percent Django. Sure, but if it's just the soundtrack, I'm torn. Um, I will say this. There was some interesting. So how about you argue for Kill Bill? Okay. And I will have a good old fashioned debate. You argue okay. for Kill Bill. I'll argue in favor of Django and we'll see where we land. Okay. So the, the plus sides to Django that I want to put out there is, um, I think it had a very creative soundtrack with the concept of mixing, um, kind of, black culture music intrinsically with this um it kind of was hamilton before hamilton oh that's an interesting way to say that but yeah okay it took hip-hop and it infused it into a time period that was maybe one of the worst in history for the united states and it it let the the black experience speak through its music in a time that rightfully belongs to people of color. You know what I mean? Like that's that's that is such an integral part of their history and it's one of the big pockmarks on American history that I feel like that soundtrack really ties in there. Also, you had an awesome single called A Hundred Black Coffins that was recorded by Jamie Foxx. Oh, man, I may need to go and, and re-listen to that because I don't remember. Or it was produced by Jamie Foxx and performed by Rick Ross oh, nice. during the movie's production. That's so cool. they wrote a song, Will Smith style, nice. for the movie that they were in. They got in jiggy with it, but that's which, got it with D. Which is dope. And then you also have this badass uh, end track by the RZA, the Jizza. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, you have it by the RZA. Uh, called Ode to Django, 
and it samples dialogue from the original English language dub. I do remember that liking the last song in that Franco movie Franco Nero, quite a bit. and it's fucking dope. Yeah. So, and then of course that end scene with the James Brown mashup right. with Tupac can't kill, can't beat it. So, so that is my argument in favor of the soundtrack for that movie. That is an incredibly strong argument. And honestly, with the cultural weight that you put into that argument, I'm going to sound like a jackass <laughs> arguing against it, but I, I'm gonna, I'm I crush gonna it debate my it. man. So if we're judging it just on the soundtrack alone, so if you take the movie, then the, then the final scenes out of it and just have listened yep. to the song, I would vote that the Kill Bill soundtrack go on it because you still have the RZA in there. He, you sure. know, he composed and produced that soundtrack. But also you have a variety in there. Now, if Kill Bill is, by all intents and purposes, a series of very violent scenes. Sure. And every one of those scenes is punctuated and accentuated by the perfect song for it. Even so far as when she's fighting the five, six, seven, eights, and nines, or how whatever they're called. The five, six, seven, eights, they are their song that they wrote for the movie, or their song is playing during the scene where they're in the movie fighting her Japanese mm-hmm. samurai style. Mm-hmm. So I think as far as soundtracks go, the variety and the layering of what it brings to the film should allow for Kill Bill to be on there. Now, having said that, I would like to make one more final point that I think your argument swayed me, and I would actually like to vote for Django to be number five on the list. Okay. So that's where I stand. Oh, it. perfect. All right. Well, Django is number five. <laughs> Yay. Um, although I do want to, I don't want to discount uh, the Kill Bill soundtrack. It is perfect. No, no. I, and I meant the argument that I made for it. I, I sure. think that it is a very good soundtrack for those purposes, for those yeah, reasons. I 100% agree with you. Um, I just think uh, never, never in Quentin's, and that's a weird thing to say. It's like saying my own name out loud, but referring to someone else. <laughs> never in Quentin's, because we're on a first name basis. Uh, never in Quentin's film filmography has a soundtrack. I think more represented a perspective that wasn't his own. Right. That, that intrigues me. You know what I mean. And it intrigues me that. And I know different people have different takes on what he did with that movie, but to not have it be a catastrophic cultural failure is impressive in itself. Is a pretty big deal. To but, be honest, it's but, like it was like it was like watching that dude tightrope between the World Trade Centers. Like <laughs> it was like any wrong move you make here, bro is very public and very disastrous. It was a real man-on-the-wire situation. Now, I will say that I think the smartest move that Quentin did was he deferred to people who had the correct perspective for that film. Right. He didn't try to, you know, obviously he wrote the movie, but he listened, and he did so, he wrote the movie openly. Right. Um... And some of his interviews, I highly suggest going and watching some of the interviews where he, him and Jamie Foxx together are out promoting the film. Yes, I, I've seen a handful of those. They're very interesting. And they get some pointed questions, some very like, who do you think you are Yeah, to put out a movie like this? You know what I mean? Who are you, some white dude? Do you know how many times the N-word is dropped in this movie? And yep. you wrote that. You yeah. wrote those words. 
You know what I mean? And his argument has always been very interesting, which is, yeah, well, that's what they said. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, I wrote it because that's how the people were. Right. Like, and sorry. I sensationalized it because that's what I do. But right. I didn't say anything they didn't say. And never once did I say, oh, this is glorious. These guys are amazing for saying that. He's like, if you look at the characters who are saying these things, they're fucking garbage. Like, they are portrayed as the scum of the earth. You know what I mean? Um, I'm not advocating in any way saying the N-word at any moment. You know what (laughs) I mean? And And these aren't the role models of the movie. I found that to be a very interesting perspective. Yeah. No, I so, agree. Um, all um, right, so we got our five, so we've now got we just need five. to put them in order. I would like to propose an order. Okay, let's do it. So here's what I would vote for. Hit me. Five, Django Unchained. Okay. Four, Reservoir Dogs. Three, okay. Hateful Eight. Two, Jackie Brown. And one, Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown. Yeah. And and I struggle with Reservoir Dogs and Hateful Eight in those positions, but I just think the the hugeness of the Murakoni score for Hateful Eight and the genius behind it is is what puts it at four for me. Yeah, I would not argue with that at all. I think that is a fantastic lineup. So all one right. more time for the for the kids in the back. All right, everybody, kids at home, here is your official list of the top five Quentin Tarantino movie soundtracks. At number five, we have Django Unchained. At number four, we've got Reservoir Dogs. Coming in strong at number three is The Hateful Eight. Number two, Jackie Brown. And your number one Quentin Tarantino movie soundtrack, Pulp Fiction. Hell yeah. I think yeah. that's I think that's cool as ice, man. I uh, uh yeah, I agree. I agree. I love man. it. So, now let's all go watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and, and really realize how much it fucks up our list. And see, yeah, see if this really needs to be on there. So let us know, uh guys, if you would, you know, subscribe to the show, share with your friends, let us know your comments about Quentin Tarantino movie soundtracks or sure. just movies in general. Uh follow us. We'd love to talk about movies. What do you think we do this for? Yeah, not for our health. That's so if for you sure. like to talk about movies, talk about them with us. Jesus Christ, what are you doing? Come on. So easy. Use the internet. God, I don't even know if I want you talking to us. I do. Please talk to us. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye. We have reached the end of another High Five, the podcast episode. It's time to lock up the writer's room and rest comfortably, knowing we knocked out another great list of things you should be watching. If the guys didn't mention your favorites this week in their lists, you can harass them by emailing them at myfive at highfivethepodcast.com. That's M-Y-F-I-V-E at H-I-G-H-F-I-V-E-T-H-E-P-O-D-C-A-S-T dot com. Got that? Or connecting with them on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash high five the podcast on twitter at high the number five the podcast instagram at high five the podcast or on letterboxd by searching high five colon the podcast 
Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you listen to podcasts and drop the show a five-star rating to show us some love. What's the worst that could happen? (laughs) Getting recast in your own life? (laughs) Maybe. See you next week. And that's a wrap, everybody. Cut, Casper. That's a wrap. Cut, printed. What happens in the next reel? Cut. Okay, that's a print. Okay, cut. That's a wrap. That's a wrap, people. Now let's get the hell out of here.